Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We are now picking up from this uh, one-week break that we had. We are picking back up in this small series that uh, Grayson and I are doing, simply called Why We Need to Be Saved. Why We Need to Be Saved. The whole purpose of this is to clarify what God makes a person, what it is that God actually makes as a, uh, makes a person an actual Christian. What, how do you know you're actually a Christian? I'm fumbling already and that annoys me, forgive me. Many opinions, many assumptions are out there about what a Christian is. Perhaps in this room, we have similar ways of people describing what it is a Christian would be, but none of that necessarily would fit with what the Bible says is a Christian. So why do we need to be saved? It's the most important question. Everything else doesn't matter until you understand that and you have that down. Many will say, in fact, that they are a Christian, but they're not a Christian. They're not saved, as we would say. When I interview a person for baptism, the question I am asking is, why do you need to be baptized? That's simply the question I will ask you. What is the reason you are seeking to be baptized? And in that question, and then the questions that will follow based upon how you answer that, we want to help the person who is sitting there Think through what it is that makes them think they are a Christian. Why are they a Christian? What makes them a Christian? Especially because oftentimes we have met people, and many of you in this room were in this situation where you thought you were a Christian, and then you come to conclude, I am not a Christian. And then you become a Christian. What is it that happened there? And that is the idea that is pervasive in our mind. And as we talk to people, it is very important that all of us keep that in mind, that we not presume that somebody is in fact a Christian, but but what is it that makes that person a Christian? What makes you a Christian? And so we want to help the Christians sitting here understand what you must explain to a person when you're talking to them about the Christian faith? What is it that you want them to understand? And so we broke this down into four parts, and these four parts are the things that you want to tell the people. The very first thing that you want to talk about is the problem, and that was my job a few weeks ago, is to talk about the problem that we all face. We all face the reality of sin. The second is the solution, This is what Grayson gave a couple of weeks ago, the solution. If we are dead in our sins, we are in rebellion to God, we are alienated from God, we are under his wrath and all the other types of things that the scripture describes for every human being. If that's the problem, how then can we be reconciled to God? How can we be 
forgiven of our sin? How can we have life? How can we be saved from his wrath? There's various ways the scripture describes it, but it all describes the idea of becoming a Christian. And when we talk about that, we need to know the solution. The solution is bound up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Grayson talked about that, and I would commend that message to you. The third one is the commands. In light of those two things, what are we commanded to do? That is my task today. And then Grayson will talk about the benefits. What are the blessings or benefits of salvation? And he will look at several of them. By no means will he exhaust that. So today we consider the commands. What are we commanded to do in light of the problem and the solution? I want to clarify this. I, I was thinking of giving this illustration. Many of you know it. It's uh, one I use on occasion, and I didn't. But let me preface everything here. In It all begins with that problem, that problem of sin. And there are people who struggle with that. They struggle with the idea of what the Bible's doctrine would call um, total depravity. And all that means is not that you are as evil as you can be, but that every aspect of you as a person is evil. Every aspect of the person, his body, his soul, his mind, his will, his intellect, you strip it down to its core, and every aspect of what makes you a human being has been stained irreparably with sin. And so I use an illustration of gunk, and many of you know what I'm doing here, but we have so many newer people, I want to explain this again. The gunk illustration I, I take this and I, I, I say to you, let's just pretend that I take um, Grayson and I pick him up and I stick him in a barrel of this greasy, nasty-smelling gunk. And he is completely covered from head to toe. Uh, there's no part of his body that's not coated in this nasty gunk. Now, when he gets out, he looks vile, he smells vile, and he creates a mess wherever he goes. He's gunky. That's the problem. He's got this gunk all over him. Now, let's say that he goes home and he comes into the house and his wife has just cleaned the house and he walks across the carpet. Uh, what has he done to the carpet? Carpet. He's, he's made it gunky because it's just on him. But he goes right away into the bathroom because he's aware of this gunkiness and he wants to get rid of it. His wife is apparently left to clean the carpet on her own uh, because he's too busy taking care of his own self. He climbs into the shower, turns it on, and he starts to wash himself. And the gunk is coming off. And the gunk is now getting all over the walls of the shower, in the floor of the shower, on the curtain. It's everywhere as is washing off. But this gunk is magical. His gunk is so nasty that the moment it comes off him, it's replaced. So no matter how long he stays under the shower, the gunk is just there. It just coats him. But he now continues to mess up everything else in the bathroom. He gets out. He tries to towel off. Now he's gunky, making gunky the, the towel itself. It's covered in it. And the moment he wipes it off, it's replaced. I mean, immediately. There's not a moment where there's this minute where there's some part of him that's clear of this gunk. It cannot be removed, but it does spread. Well, he walks out after the shower. He gives up and he sees his wife. She's dealing with uh, the laundry and she's just washing it. She's folding it up. And he walks across the room because he loves her. And he thinks, I'll help her. So he picks up the laundry and he starts to fold it. But what has he done now to the clean laundry? 
He's made a gunky. Because he's gunky. He can't help it. He's trying to do a good thing, right? But it's now gunkied. Or as I say, gunkified. That's a formal theological term. Um, he's gunkified it. Because he's gunky. But this gunk is worse than you think because it's not merely external. It sucks into the very core of his being. It sucks in until it coats every thought that he has, every dream that he ever dreams, every hope that he hopes, every plan that he plans. In fact, before any of those things ever are born, they're merely sort of there but not there, the gunk covers it. So now, even his thoughts are gunky. His words are gunky. He looks at his wife. He loves his wife. And he tells her with with as much meaning as he can bring to his voice and his expressions, he looks at her and he says, I love you. Good words. But they're covered in the gunk. Nothing he does, nothing he thinks, nowhere he goes can he avoid this because it has now so much become part of him that everything that is him is now gunky. Now just change that word to sin, and that's what you have. Now it would be greatly offensive if he was the only one that way, because he would smell and reek, and he would be vile looking to us, because all of us would be sitting here clean looking at this gunky man, except we're just as gunky. And so... We look past the gunk and we ignore the gunk and we just hear the words, I love you, and say, but that's a good thing. But God is not. God is perfect. God is holy. God is not gunky. And that is what it means when he says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the issue that you're striving against. You're not striving against what you call good. You want to say, I do good things, fine. I won't debate you. Those are good things. From a human perspective, yes, they're all good, fine things. But when you compare them to the holy God who cannot tolerate evil, it's vile, it's offensive, and it brings you under his judgment. That is the problem. And that is what Christ did then, the great exchange he talked about. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That the Father takes our sin and imputes it, places it, reckons it to be his sin, though he never sinned. He dies in our place, the substitutionary death of Christ. He dies in our place, we should be there, that we might then have his righteousness covering us. You say, yeah, but I still see my gunkiness. I still see my sin. That's because you yourself are still a sinner. It is not your righteousness that saves you. It is the righteousness of Christ that covers you, that saves you. That is it in a nutshell. God, rich in his mercy, gave us his son. God in human flesh to be our perfect sacrifice. He, as our sacrifice, who takes our place, He drinks the fullness of our wrath. He becomes sin that we might become righteousness in him. He defeats both the sin and the power of sin, which is death, through his resurrection. And that is the gospel. The problem is we're sinners. The good news is that Christ has provided a way. 
and only one way, in and through Jesus Christ. The Bible then gives us two commands in light of this fact. What does God say about us and our universal guilt? Well, we are guilty and that Christ is the solution. What does he say then we are to do? And he gives us two commands, repent and believe. And so today I intend to show you what these terms mean and what they promise to the one who does them. We believe is the the command. We repent and believe both the problem and the solution. The Bible makes this very simple statement um, from a prophet who was preparing the way of the nation. I mean, preparing the nation of Israel to see their Savior, Jesus Christ. It should... Oh, I didn't do it. There we go. Mark one fifteen. Mark one fifteen makes this very simple statement. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, what? Repent and believe in the gospel. The whole of the Bible up to that point, the whole of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, everything was pointing and promising and preparing for that one who would come to rescue or save or deliver, however you want to call it, God's people from sin and death. It's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. We've now come to that moment. It has come. The kingdom of God. That's, that's a shorthand way of saying that the, what the prophets had promised. They had told of the true eternal king who would come and establish God's perfect rule on the earth. That all the nations would come to Jerusalem and worship and that God would reign. This is the idea that now the king has come and therefore the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the gospel, he says. It's good news. So what must we do? Two things. Two things, very simple, but very, very critical. We must repent and believe. And what is the content? Look at the, 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 the verse and ask yourself, what is the content? What is the focus of repenting and believing? What do we repent and believe in? We believe in the gospel, the good news. And so we will break this sermon down into very simple points, two of them. In light of the problem of mankind's universal sinfulness and guilt before its creator, and because of God's perfect provision of forgiveness and salvation from judgment and death through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, meaning substitutionary means that God, Christ took our place. He was our substitute. What then is to be our response? And the answer is repent and believe. So let's talk first about the command to repent. And while we do that, you might find First Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you're not sure or you don't have a Bible under the seat around you, you should find a small black pew Bible. And near the back of the Bible on page 159, you'll find that text. We'll look at that in just a moment. 
the command to repent. So let us first consider for a moment what has happened to a man or woman who actually says now, they never said this before, but now they're saying, I am a Christian, that they believe in the Christian gospel. In other words, they believe what Grayson taught two weeks ago. They believe that Christ is my solution. He is the one who died in my place. He is the one who rose again. His payment is sufficient for all sin, my sin. His life is my life. I believe this. I am a Christian. They might not always know how to say it right, but that's what they're saying. Would you not agree that we would say that something has changed? Two weeks ago, that's not the way that guy talked. Two weeks ago, that was not who he was. So what has changed? And this is very common for people. One day, they're minding their own business. And the next day, these things about, uh, suddenly become very important to them. These things about them as a sinner and Jesus Christ as the Savior become very, very important to them. What has changed? Because something has. Why did they not care about this this week, but now they're starting to talk about it? In fact, maybe annoyingly so. They just keep talking about it. For some, this change is a rather abrupt abrupt moment, while others, it actually is a process where things slowly change until at some point they actually realize, you know, I do believe that. But they don't quite know where that change happened, whereas others, they can tell you the date. Some of them can tell you the hour. They wrote it down. It it was like a lightning bolt for them. But others, it's more of this slow dawning until one day somebody challenges and says, well, what do you believe? And they realize, I do believe that. That is my hope. But what happened? Well, we can say that they believe or that they're now believers. And that's how we oftentimes will word it. But why? Well, the answer of that is the idea of repentance. The reason they believe is because they had a change of mind. They've had a change of mind. At one point, they heard the Christian message, the gospel, but it really meant nothing. Or it was a point of passing interest at best. That was about all it was. But then there's this critical change where the gospel becomes precious to them. They truly believed it. And that is what is meant by repent. It literally means a change of mind. So if you haven't done so by now, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 9 and 10 as a passage to illustrate this. All repentance means is a change of mind. And so he says in verses 9 and 10, for they themselves, we'll talk about that in a second, for they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. This change of mind. People cannot continue believing one thing if they have truly had a change of mind. I want you to think about that. Once You, you might acknowledge things, 
but that's not the same as a change of mind. You might give room and say, okay, I used to believe this, but I'm willing to allow that maybe that's true or, or that that's what you believe or, yeah, I can see your point. That's not change of mind. Once you've made an actual mind change, everything is different now. You can't keep going in the same direction. Though many times it's weird, people will try out of habit or guilt or something like that. They'll just continue to try, but they find they just can't because their mind has been changed. Something has happened. Note the report that the Apostle Paul heard from others after he was there in the city of Thessalonica preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he says, they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you and how you, and here's the key thing, you turn to God and you turn therefore from what? Idols. Now remember, all of us are worshipers by nature. All of you are, every one of you. You all have your, your thing that you worship. What you worship may be different from others, but you all find your hope, all find your joy, your purpose in one or more things. And anytime a person uh, wants to know that, they just need to hang around you for a while to begin to figure out this is what is most important to you. This is what you will lay your life down for. This is what you live for. This is what you think about. This is what captures your money and your time and your delights. The Bible says that God's wrath, though, is upon each of us because we worship something, anything other than him. He is the one who makes us and sustains us, and yet we do not honor him as God nor give him thanks as God. And these people then turn from that way of thinking, and they turn from that way of worshiping other things, and now they say, it says that they turn to God. I want you to keep that in mind. The mind is not, hey, we need to get rid of these gods and turn to get rid of these false gods and turn to the true God. No, what happened was their mind changed and they turned to God. And by naturally turning to God, they naturally rejected the idols. It was a very natural reality. Now, what's the purpose? What was the purpose of them turning from their idols to God? Was it a vague turning? Was it an emotional turning? Just look down at me at the passage. No, I want you to find the purpose. What was the purpose of their turning to God? How you turn to God from idols, and then I I would encourage you to circle to serve and draw a little line out to the margin and say that's the purpose of turning. The purpose of turning was to serve. Another way you could say that is worship. This is the fruit of repentance. Because you'll find many a person will tell you, yeah, I've repented, I've repented. And yet they continue in the same way that they have gone. They continue to go back to their idols. And at some point you have to say, that's not repentance. You might feel bad about what you did. You might feel bad about the consequences of it. But you have yet to turn to God because when you turn to God, you naturally turn from the idol. And when you turn to God, it is not some vague turning to God. It is with the goal, the purpose to serve him. Watch any person for a time and you will see what or who they worship. It will always be evident. The proof of repentance is seeing 
in whom or what you serve. This is why Jesus said that we cannot have two masters, money and possessions, or God. He says you can't. You can't serve two masters. You will always love one and hate the other. And yet America is built on the tradition of trying to do that, right? We, we want to worship God, and yet we're going to manage our money and keep that very close to us because you hedge your bets. Don't want to be too presumptuous. But true repentance is one where we are now serving the God to whom we turned. But also notice that it was not a vague sort of turning either. There's such a clear indication of what changed in their minds, so much so that the Christians in other cities and regions had taken note of this. Now realize this, that before internet, before phones or anything, back in those days, they traveled primarily by foot. And the, and the area that, the, the areas that have been, uh, he's referring to in verse 8, in Macedonia and Achaia, these are regions outside of Thessalonica. They're not massive distances, but they're in no way cl- uh, close. They would be like Green Bay or Minneapolis. Now picture if you had to travel by foot, how easy would the information be of what's going on here in little old Kenosha up in Green Bay or over in Minneapolis if the only thing that's happening is foot travel? And yet, the people of Thessalonica were so affected by the gospel and their, their, their change of mind was so obvious that the people up in Green Bay and Minneapolis are talking about you. Again, The faith of a Christian is never a private thing. You don't get to say, I believe in secret. It must become public. And it's not because you're required to. You can't help it. You're compelled to speak and express your hope. You are now serving your God, just like you used to serve fishing, and you couldn't shut up about fishing and you always talked about your fishing, now you want to talk about God because you now serve him. What is it that they were now confessing? What was it that they believed? Well, several things. He says, to serve the living and true God. So first, it's the true God. that The Bible makes this abundantly clear that there are so much so that all who speak about the gospel must make this clear. There's but one true God, only one the God of the Bible, and you will not share that glory with any others. So we're not asking a person when we talk to them about Jesus Christ to add God to their gods. We're not asking them to add God into their life of activities. We are calling people instead to reject all other gods, however they're called, and to follow and to serve him alone. Why? Because the one who has repented is the one who sees the God of the Bible as the true God. It's that simple. If you're still waffling on that, then you have not yet repented. You have not yet turned to the living God. You have not turned from your idols. You're somewhere in between, which is a terrible place to be. But not only is he the true God, but he's the living God. And one of the things the Bible does, and it's quite humorous at times, is mocks those who worship idols. 
The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament talks about them cutting down a tree, and the craftsman then takes the log, and he begins to shape it into some god, and then he decorates with gold and silver, and then he props it up against the wall because they cannot stand on its own. And then they go and they bow and they pray and they worship it, but it cannot speak. They feed it, but it cannot eat. And he just mocks them for it. Your God is one that you have to go and fashion. This is why the Israelite was forbidden to ever make a graven image of God because he is not contained in that. He is the creator of all of those things. So, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14 are out preaching the gospel in a city And they end up becoming called gods themselves. So they're in there and they're preaching and their preaching is so powerful that the people actually start to think that they have become gods and they come out to worship them, which is their worst nightmare. And so what happens is Paul and Barnabas, they start yelling at these people who are running up to them and bowing down at them. And they say this, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, proclaiming what? The gospel. To you, for what purpose? Why do they say that? So that you should turn, repent from these vain things, these idols, these beliefs that you have, to a living God. And as living God, who is he? He is the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but if you were the type of idolater that worships creation, or you have the moon God, or you have the sea God, or you have the fertility God, whatever it might be, the God of the mountains, or you might have them all just to hedge your bets, and then you find out that this is the true living God, and he made all of these things, then you know that He is greater than any or all of those gods put together. He is the one that made it all happen. And that's what they're saying. So he is saying that these men men and women in Thessalonica have turned to the true living God. They believe in the the return of Jesus Christ. Look back down in, in your passage. To wait for his son from heaven. So we get a better sense of what Paul was preaching to these people. He was not just talking about his death and resurrection, but he would return to judge. The message was about God's Son, Jesus Christ, that he was to return to us, that those who believed this were to wait and to hope and to look for that day. What does repentance look like? It looks like one who has turned to God and is now waiting with an expectancy and a hope in the return of Christ. The Bible says that when he returns, two things will happen. Those who believe in him will be saved from judgment, and those who have not believed shall be judged and found guilty. The Christian waits expectantly for his coming, because in that they find the ultimate in their salvation. For the unbeliever, you should fear his coming, because the only thing that awaits you is his sure judgment. He also talks about the resurrection and therefore the death of Jesus. Notice he says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. 
So you have to believe both the resurrection of Christ as well as his death, and all of that gets into the idea of God sending his son to be our substitute, to die in our place. How do we know that he, uh, his death was accepted? It was accepted because God then raised him from the dead on the third day. If these things are true and happened, then we should expect him to return just like he promised as well. Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. All of this was said, but it also says that he is returning again, and our rest and our hope is to be found in that. The reality is that in Jesus, and only in Jesus, is where you will find salvation from God's judgment. To the one who repents, there is salvation. To the one who rejects, there's judgment. It's that simple. And this judgment is described as eternal death or eternal separation from God. It's oftentimes referred to as simply hell. And this is what Jesus rescues us from. Look at the last bit. He rescues us from that wrath. So this turning, this repenting was not vague. It was very full. A change of mind toward a different direction based on different realities. And that's how repentance works. It's a true change of mind. The unrepentant person may acknowledge all of this. Hear that. They may acknowledge it. They may acknowledge hell, judgment, wrath of God. But it's always going to be for someone else. Or they're thinking somehow they'll escape it. Give them time, give them enough effort, and they will assemble enough things that they can bring to God that they will offer to him and show that they are not worthy of this eternal death. And they don't understand that gunk that coats everything. It's sort of like drug addicts. I remember seeing a guy and his girlfriend, and they're heading toward the methadone clinic where they're going to get their methadone and then some heroin. And we pulled over and we just talked with them, very nice people, um, well down the path of their addiction. And we're just talking as a police officer, and they were very comfortable talking to us. And so I wanted to see where he was shooting up. And so I said, so where do you shoot? And weirdly, most uh, addicts are quite open about what they do. And he's like, oh, yeah, so I used to shoot here. And he was showing me his tattoos and how he had the tattoo to hide the place that he uh, shot up. It wasn't as obvious. So he's showing me and, and then giving me a few tricks of the trade on how to find other places. Then his girlfriend said, yeah, I used to do it there, but now I do it between my toes. I'm like, ow. Um, I looked at them both, and I said, you know this is killing you. Yeah. That, does that bother? Yeah, but we like the high. And we let them go. And I thought, that, that is a definition of your average sinner. You're going to hell, you understand. Yeah, in some vague way, yeah, but I like what I'm doing. It is the reality of what sin does. I'm not giving this up. And in the back of their mind, they think they can get clean later, but of course they never do. This is the idea of repenting. There's this radical change of mind about yourself 
and God, a, a change that so results that your life radically is moving now in a different direction because it thinks differently. So the question then that should be in your mind is, why did you repent? And the reason you repent is because you obeyed another command that was back in Mark. You believed. You believed the good news. And so let me now explain the idea of what it means to believe. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you have the Pew Bible near the back of the Bible, it's on page 175. 175. We're going to talk briefly about belief. Actually, I've been talking about belief this whole time with repenting, but now we'll say it explicitly. Now, to believe is to have faith. And to have faith, the act of having faith is believing. That's all that is. So you have to, you are saved by faith or by, uh, by grace, through faith. So it's through faith that you are saved. And you say, okay, well, so what's faith? Well, it's believing. And you're like, okay, so what do you mean by, having, uh, by believing? Well, you have faith. And you're like, okay, you haven't helped me a lot. So Hebrews 11 will be a way that we can look at this. Notice this verses 1 and 2. He says, now faith is the assurance... If you have the King James, it might say the substance. Uh, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for this reason. By it, the men of old gained approval. Then move down, he gives some illustrations, and then back in verse 6, he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why? For he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and, notice that and, very important and, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So in here, we have this idea of belief, but it really is describing repentance, because repentance and belief are so tightly connected that you really cannot separate them. They're really just simply two sides of the same coin. As I said, belief is a verb of the word faith. So to say you believe means that you have some content, something in which you have placed your faith, your hope, your trust. So the first thing we see is it is an assurance. To believe in verse 1 is an assurance. It means of having a foundation. Literally, that's what it's talking about. It's a substantive foundation, this thing that is rock solid for you that you are standing upon. So when you say, I have, I believe, the question is, are you standing on that? Is that hope? The, whatever it is that you're believing, is that the foundation upon which you stand? It's not some wishy-washy, wispy hope. It's a settled conviction that it's true. It's how we have to approach God, believing that he has revealed what he has revealed about us, about himself, where we begin to establish our life and our hope as all upon the foundation of the gospel. This is what's so fun to watch a young Christian who comes to faith. And they believe, they repent, and they believe. And, and what they discover is that their life, think about it, those of you who are younger Christians, think, think about what maybe you looked like a year ago 
or two years ago. And think about the things that you did and where you were going and how you were functioning. And you're like, dude, I never saw myself doing this. Who would have thought? Who would have thought five years ago I'd be here? Who would have thought I would have bought a MacArthur study Bible? I would have thought you were whack. The things that the Christian does begins to show what it is that they're believing in. And the foundation of that is Christ. To believe then is to be assured. That's how we approach God. Notice in verse 6 that to not have faith means you cannot and will not be accepted by God. You come to him, but you do not believe what he has said. But somehow you expect him to accept you. You don't just believe that God is. Many a person believes in God, but you will not believe that he will reward you as you seek him. The great promise of the gospel is come. Come and believe and you'll be saved. Repent from your ways, turn to God, and therefore from your sin, and you will be accepted. You will be redeemed. You will be washed clean. And it's there that so many people will stumble. They will not believe God will reward them. I have sat in my room over the years and had people who have done incredibly wicked things. And they're like, I, 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 I can't even forgive myself. There's no way God would forgive me, which is offensive because, again, you are establishing yourself above God like somehow your forgiveness would, is harder to do than God. Oh, my goodness, God is the sovereign one, the omnipotent one, the infinite one. His love, his grace, and his patience, and his forgiveness is all of those things. And talking to those people who have done great, great evil and pointing them to only in Christ Will you find that? But it's promised to you if you will believe. If you will rest there, you have to believe that he will do what he promised. And that's what I want to focus on for the remainder of this sermon. I forgot to set my stopwatch, so we're just finishing this. So let me ask you this right now, each one of you. If Would you say you're a Christian? I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to just answer this in your own mind. Would you believe that you're a Christian? And if so, why? Why do you say that? Now, usually, the response will be that you believe. Sometimes this is said in a bit more detailed manner, such as you believe in the gospel or that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and he, that he rose again on the third day. And I will, if you say that to me, I will say, great, what does that mean? And I'll start probing that. But what I want to know and I want you to think about right now is what is it that you believe At the core of it, you always will say in some way or another, you trust, you believe in the gospel. Often what's missing, though, is a simple, clear understanding of that gospel. What does it mean to believe in the gospel? What does it mean to have, and I'm going to call it this way, have saving faith? All of us have faith. None of you can live without faith. You believe so many things, 
and you put your hope in that. Um, only the older people in this room will remember this event. Remember when the Tylenol scare, when they had some guy put the poison in the Tylenol, and only gray heads are nodding. Oh, yeah, I remember that was like yesterday. Uh, um, many a person, if you had the bottle, you had the bottle of Tylenol, and you opened it up, and you took it because you had a headache, you had great faith that it was going to take away your headache, right? But it didn't matter. It was poison. And your faith didn't matter because what you were placing your faith in was, in fact, poison, not the Tylenol. And this is the reality. Is many people will say, I believe, I believe, I believe, but their faith is resting in something other than the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and therefore, it is a worthless faith. What is saving faith? We all believe something, but it's not saving faith. There are those who believe the right things about themselves. There are those who believe about um, Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can get this thing to turn. There we go. So what is saving faith? I want to work out with you something that many of you know, and it's simply what's called the three aspects that are necessary to have saving faith. The three aspects of saving faith. Now, for you to understand, I'm listening for those when I talk to people about baptism. I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear all three of these expressed. And if I don't have all three of them, I know I'm not dealing with somebody who has saving faith. They have not yet believed. You need to know the right facts. You need to agree to those facts. And you need to trust in the God who declared these to be facts. The reality is that often one of these points is missing. And as a result, the person is never saved. But what makes this even more sad is that they often think they're saved. Many a church is filled with people who have come to two of the three points, but never all of them. So let me walk you through these briefly. It's very simple, and it'll make great sense, I, I think. The first thing is you must know the gospel. Now, that's critical, and yet it's often downplayed today. For decades, the church in America has played this minimalization game on what is the good news, down to the point that what is the gospel? God loves us. What the heck does that mean? God loves us. He loves us so much that he stretched out his hands and died. And other sorts of statements like that that will bring you straight into the depths of hell. That means nothing. Or you'll say, well, he loves us and so he died for us. What do you mean by he died for us? What does that word for mean? I don't know. It means he died for us. I, I got that, but what does it mean? And they don't know. For too many, it's simply that God loves you and wants to have you with him in heaven. Or that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but no idea what it means. It's, it's a series of facts that have no real meaning behind them. So it's sort of like when you were young and you got an Easter basket and you had one of those giant chocolate Easter eggs and you're like, sweet. And you tear it open and if you're like me, you went to the ear and you bit the ear off and it was what? Hollow. And then you understood what being cheated meant. <laughs> right? I mean, 
you were like somewhat impressed that it was so light when you picked it up, but you're too dumb to understand what's happening here. It's a hollow Easter bunny. Or if you've ever seen that little video of giving a raccoon some um, cotton candy, and then it runs over to the water to wash it, and it just disappears. That's what most people's faith is, though. That's all it is. They, they, they go, I got it. And, and people are saying, oh, you're saved now. Congratulations. But you put the faith in the water, it's just, it's gone. It's hollow. It's, it's empty. You have to know the facts. You have to know your sinfulness. You have to know it. You cannot be saved from something you don't believe in. You must understand these facts about yourself. You must understand your inability to help yourself be saved. What are you going to do if you're as gunky as Grayson is, and we all are, what are you going to do to help God get you out of hell? You have to come to grips with that, and that is a horrifying moment for people as they start to think, I'm as bad as I was afraid I might be, but I've been lying to myself all this time. You have to believe and understand the substitution that God took my place. His son is my savior because he took my place. He died my death. He suffered and drank the wrath I was to take. You have to understand that he purchased his people from slavery to sin. You have to believe that he physically, not just some vague way, but physically, bodily, rose from the grave on the third day. You have to believe that he is returning again to judge the living and the dead. You have to believe those things. Those are the facts. And a lot of people think because they got the facts, they're saved. No. That's just the beginning. The second thing you have to do is agree to these facts. This is simply an embracing of what the Bible says to be true. In other words, you're not fighting it. You're not arguing with it. You agree with them that what is said about the Bible, you say, yeah, I believe that too. I believe I'm a sinner. I I believe I have no hope. I believe that Christ is my substitute. I believe that he redeemed me from sin. I believe I'm not fighting with you. I agree with you. Not kind of agreeing with you. Well, I'm willing to give you this and this. I'm not so sure about that, though. No, no. At this point, you're just simply saying, yeah, I'm not fighting it. Very common in the Lutheran and Presbyterian churches, um, that you'll see this actually in action. And it's kind of cool what they do. They have this thing called confirmation. um, And every place is uh, slightly different. But because they believe in baptism of the infant, uh, for especially Lutheran, they believe that at that point, God gives the child faith and that they're now a believer. But now they have to be confirmed. And so they go through a series of catechisms and classes until a certain age. I can't remember what it is. It's around 12, 13. Um, And they're confirmed. And in it, they're asked a series of questions. And do you affirm these things? Do you believe these things? Do you agree with these things? And then they're confirmed in their faith. This is what's happening there is you're trying to make sure whether or not they agree with the facts of the gospel, that they're not rejecting them. Many people growing up in other churches who don't do confirmation, they will say they are saved because they say that they believe the gospel and they say they're believed because they're not arguing about the gospel, 
even though it was very vague to them. This is what you oftentimes have with Christian homes. You bring your children up in the gospel and around the gospel, and, and they just, they're not fighting you. They love mom, they love dad, they love their church. That's where all their friends are. And so they just accept all of this, but there's no debate. And then you wonder what happens to them that they disappear later on as adults. But it's still not what saving faith is. It's necessary. You have to. You can't argue about these things. Many know the gospel and agree with it, yet nothing in their life exhibits that faith. The Bible says that we cannot hide what we believe. It always is shown by what we do or don't do. Yet many will claim to be a Christian and their life is not marked, and yet their life is marked by rebellion of one sort or another. And this is where you come to the most critical one, the last part, and that is you must trust in God who declares these to be the facts. This is the idea of repentance. This is the idea of what Hebrews 11 is talking about. It is this settled assurance that this is where I stand and I'm not moving. Does that make sense? There's one thing to acknowledge it and say, yeah, I'm not arguing with that. And yet your feet are dancing everywhere. It's another thing to find it and say, I'm not moving. I am not moving. This is secure. In fact, my wife and I, in our hiking, um, I believe in hiking. And if you do hike, you go off trail. Um, Trails are for ninnies. And... (laughs) One should be adventurous. And there was this time, there was a volcanic crater, um, and we thought we would go along the edge of it. She's giving me the look right now. And there was a vague trail, and then there was no trail. And things got a little dicey there. We started to slide down the crater. And um, I was having fun. She was less so. Um, it's like, what's the worst it can do? So you got to climb out of a crater. Come on. Um, very, steep. <laughs> very steep crater, but nonetheless a crater. I mean, we could do it. But I will tell you that it got a little dicey, and I was taking great concern for my wife because uh, she was not happy, and I was therefore concerned for her, even though at the same time inside I'm going, this is great, and I'm enjoying myself. But then my feet hit a place, and it was solid. And if you've ever started to slide down a cliffside, you, you can appreciate that. There's a rush, okay, a real rush that goes on. And it's a cool rush if you like them, not so cool if you don't like them. But when your feet hits onto a rock outcropping, and you stop, and you realize this one's not giving away, this is solid. You know what? For a little bit, you just say, we're going to just stay here for a second, now, you can't stay there forever because you got to get out of the crater. But we're going to stay here, get our senses, figure out where we're going to put our next foot. But the whole point is we're looking for that stable, solid thing, right? That's the gospel. When you come to this point where you trust in God, it's where you've got your foot on it and you're like, I'm not leaving it. Everything else is, uh, as uh, it goes, shifting sand. It, it just moves under you. It's a settled awareness that, that you can't help in this salvation. A settled awareness that God alone is the one who saves you from damnation. And that you deserve that damnation, yet he's not going to do it. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And you're like, I am not budging from Jesus. 
It's an awareness that even your faith is not what saves you. It's what, it, it is in what and whom Jesus is that saves me. It's all him. It's a settled awareness that only through Jesus and who he is and what he did can I be saved. You come to conclude that his death and resurrection really is enough. You don't have to go beyond that. It's not death and resurrection plus a few things you throw in. It's just a period. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our purpose. Listen, I've been doing this for a long time, and I have watched it happen over and over and over and over again, of people who would say, I am saved, and then come to me later and say, I was not saved. I was not saved, but I think I am now. And why? Because they could look back and they realized that I had the facts, and I didn't even argue with the facts, but I did not trust in those things. Does that make sense? My hope is not there, and my hope is there. I don't know what's changed, and for a lot of people, they wrestle through that point of, of sin. They, 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 they've never been confronted with their sinfulness. So many churches are so full of sweet words that they never get around to telling you the horrible reality of our sin. And they start to hear it, and it bothers them. And they wrestle under that. And then they begin to hear about Jesus, but they hear it in a way that maybe they've not heard it before because the, the church they were attending was so downplaying the person and work of Jesus. And they're like, I didn't know he did these things. And then they realize, I found my Savior. I found my life. And, and all they know is that I used to think this way, and now I think this way. That's called repentance. And because they repent, they now believe. And it's not just agreeing, it's a settled resting. So many a person raised in the church, many members of a church who claim to be a Christian, who know the facts, who agree with the facts, but have never trusted in the God who saves. For some, they hear the gospel and that suddenly just blasts in their brain, and they believe. It's light, light bulb clicking in a very dark room. Others of you, it's that slow, gradual, dimmer switch kind of thing where it's getting brighter and brighter as you hear and you keep hearing, and then one day you just realize, I do believe. It's something's different, and you realize what's different is I'm resting in Christ alone. He's my hope. He's my life. This is what you must understand. If you're a Christian, you must Give the gospel. What is the gospel? In the most simplest way is that Christ died for our sins in our place. He was buried and he rose again on the third day, all as the scripture said. That's the most basic essence of it, but it's much more fuller than that. You must believe this. And you who are a Christian, you are commanded to speak this until the person either rejects it or they accept it. Your job is simply to speak the gospel. God will do the saving. So the only thing you need to do once you've spoken the gospel is to call the people to trust in it, to trust that Jesus is the only way to be saved, only way through his life, death, and resurrection. That's what I'm, I say to you here. So let me ask each one of you again, what do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you now believe it? 
and before you didn't. Is this your hope and your only hope? If so, you can call yourself a believer. We'd love to hear that. Next week, we'll have Grayson bring to you then what are the blessings that come when you believe. And we hope that that will encourage you that God is immensely kind to not only forgive you your sins, but give you these types of blessings that are yours forevermore. Let's pray. So Holy Father, take this and open this into our hearts, our minds. I, take, I ask that you take the one who is hiding their faith, who's afraid, that you would cause them to see there's nothing to be afraid of, but simply to stand boldly, that you will sustain them, strengthen them, cause their mouth to open to speak the hope that's found in Christ alone. Father, that you would open us, uh, our eyes up to the glories of what it means to be in Christ, how rich it is that we have been fully forgiven, washed clean, made as white as snow. I pray that you give no rest to those who reject this, that, that you pummel their hearts with the awareness of their sin, that they might see it in every way, shape, or form. That you might prompt their heart to see how often their minds turn to that pursuit of evil until they are tormented with it and that they cry out to you for salvation. I pray that we would see a good work done in this way that our church would continue to grow, especially with those who come to faith knowing now their Savior and Lord. Bless us. Bless us as we eat today down in the gym. Bless the meeting. Care for us as you have so richly done so every day up to now. In your son's holy name, amen.